This is Studio One at CBS. Get down, Father, get down. You'll be killed by the flying glass. Jacob, can't you see your home now? You're safe. Look there, out the window. The towers of the university. Get down, Father. You'll be cut to bits. Jacob, you're not well. It's all right now. We're safe here in America. We're thousands of miles from the nearest spot where bombs fell. You don't understand. You don't understand. These are the new rocket bombs. The new rocket bombs for the Jews. With a dramatic moment from Act of Faith by Irwin Shaw, CBS invites you to Studio One, a Columbia feature presentation from the pages of the world's great storytellers. And now, to introduce tonight's great story, here is the director of Studio One, Fletcher Markle. This week, we're turning over the last half of Studio One's regular hour to Norman Gwynn for a special CBS broadcast commemorating today's opening at Lake Success of the Second General Assembly of the United Nations. As for our part of the hour, we're submitting one of Irwin Shaw's most memorably eloquent stories. It's called Act of Faith. Originally published in the New Yorker magazine, Act of Faith is something more than a great story. It is a vivid and startling comment on one of the important problems facing not only the General Assembly of the United Nations, but each and all of us, alone and together. Among the principals in tonight's cast, we'll be hearing Martin Wolfson as the father, Robert Dryden as Welch, and Myron McCormick as Captain Taney. And I'm going to join them at the microphone to play Sergeant Norman Seeger. Active Faith by Irwin Shaw is arranged for radio by Charles S. Monroe. they had joined up. They had fought to the end somewhere in Germany. Now here they were, after the victory, the fighting over, still in France, in the mud and the rain and the chill countryside. October, 1945. I'm redeployable. Ah, the sentiment's untrue, but I like the tune. <laughs> yeah, it's the CO's tent up ahead, Seeger. So it is, Olsen, so it is. Remember now, present the case to the captain in a pitiful light. Yes. Three battle-scarred veterans who fought their way from Omaha Beach to... What was the name of that town we fought our way to? Koenigstein. Koenigstein, yeah. Point out that we are the backbone of the Army, the non-commissioned officer. Why, it's the captain's duty to see that you and Welch and myself get to Paris tonight. Uh-huh. To mention our low state of mind, huh? Our need for Paris and La Vie. Uh, I mentioned our decorations in passing. 
What decoration should I mention? The Marksman's Medal? I'll mention the Bronze Star, the Silver Star, the Croix de Guerre with Palms, the Unit Citation, the Congressional Medal of Honor. You don't think Captain Sandy will remember we haven't won most of them, do you? Do you suggest, sir, that one Southern military gentleman will dare doubt the word of another Southern military gentleman in the hour of victory? Captain Sandy and I come from Ohio. Well, Welch comes from Kansas. You've heard of Kansas. Magnolia sent Kansas? Of course. I'm no fool. Hey, here's his tent. Do your duty by a man-seeker. Highest-ranking non-com president took the initiative and saved his comrades for a trip to Paris at great personal risk, above and beyond the call of you. Olson, I will throw myself into the breach. Ah, then be brave. Welch and I will be waiting for you in our tent. Okay. Hello, Seeger. Johnny. Captain's writing a letter. I can wait. What's that? Oh, hello, Seeger. Come on in. What's on your mind? Am I disturbing, sir? Oh, no, no. Just writing a letter to my wife. Are you married, Seeger? No, sir. It's very difficult. My wife complains I don't love her and that I don't write her enough. Been married 15 years. You'd think she'd know by now. (laughs) I thought you and Welsh and Olsen were going to Paris. Uh, That's what I came to see you about, sir. I suppose something's wrong with the passes. It isn't the passes, sir. They're fine. They start tomorrow. It's just that... uh, Is this confidential? If you don't mind, sir. Uh, Johnny, go stand in the rain someplace. Yes, sir. Well, what is it, Seeger? Out, sir? It's, uh... Well, it's hard to say, sir. Yes? It's money. Oh. <laughs> money, yes, I know. We haven't been paid for three months, sir. I know, I know. I would like to take every lousy chair one old lady in the finance department and wring her neck. Anything wrong? You call for me, Captain? No, get out of here, Johnny. <laughs> <sighs> I suppose finance has its problems, too, Seeger. Outfits being broken up, being moved all over. Pretty rugged. No, it wouldn't be so bad, sir, but going to Paris, as we are, Olsen, Welch, and myself, we need... Well, you do need money in Paris. Don't I know it. Do you know what I paid for a bottle of champagne there last September? Well, I won't tell you. You wouldn't have any respect for me the rest of your life. (laughs) Hanging's too good for the guy who thought up the rate of exchange. I don't care if I never see another franc as long as I live. Uh, Captain, the the truth is I've come to borrow some money for Welch Olson and myself. We'll pay it back out of the first pay we get. We don't like to ask, but you might just as well be dead as be broke in Paris. Just... Say the word, sir, and I'll blow. Stay where you are, son. Yes, sir. Uh, you like this billfold? Hmm? It's alligator. My wife gave it to me. Uh, 20, 40, 60, 80, uh, let's see, 400 francs, Eight bucks. Oh, excuse me, I shouldn't have asked. Delighted, absolutely delighted to give you half. The truth is, most of my money goes home in a lot of... Please, sir, don't divide it for our benefit. And the truth is, I lost 1,100 francs in a poker game three nights ago. I ought to be ashamed of myself. Here, 200 francs. No, sir, I can't take it. Take it? That's a direct order. Yes, sir. 
Sometimes, sir, when we get back to Ohio, you have to come over to my house and... You and my father and my brother Jacob and I will go out on a real tear. I regard that as a solemn commitment. That's fine, sir. Your brother's out of the hospital now? Yes, sir. He's back living with my father at the university. He's all right, your brother. Yes, sir. So my father writes... Good, good, good. I shall look forward to joining you for that celebration. And, uh, have a drink for me in Paris. A, uh, a small one. Yes, Captain. Thank you, sir. Seeger, mon vieux? How much, Norman? Two hundred francs, gentlemen. Two hundred francs? Oh, a boy on a man's errand. I can just see us painting Montmartre red on two hundred francs. Bring on the dancing girls. Bring on the champagne. Four dollars worth. Ah, oh, the miserable penny pinch. Welch, the captain only had four hundred. Oh, I revise my opinion. I'm sorry. Oh, skip it, skip it. I'm not worried. Hmm. He isn't worried. I know where we can put our hands on 65 bucks. Welch, my friend, I'll kill you if you're kidding. While you guys were wasting time earlier, I went into town and used my head. 65 bucks how? Got to talking with an Air Force captain, little fat old paddle-footed captain who never got higher off the ground than the second floor of ComZ headquarters, and he told me that what he would admire to do more than anything else is take home a nice, shiny German Luger pistol to show to the boys back in Pacific Grove, California. Oh, I see. Oh, that Luger of his means a lot to Seeger Welch. A whole lot. I was there when he got it. But they've been selling for as low as 35. I know. A lieutenant offered me a hundred for it back in August. You know, I bet you could sell yours to this captain for 65 and later on maybe buy another just as good for 35. That'll give you 30 clear on the deal. We could sure use dough like that for Paris. Yeah. Well, there's no hurry. I told the captain I'd see him about eight tonight. That's five hours. You've got plenty of time to make up your mind, Seeger. Me? I'm not saying a word. Oh, I forgot. I picked up a letter for you, Norman. Oh, thanks. That's your father's handwriting, isn't it? Yeah. I saw the name and the address, but it... Doesn't look like his other letters. He always writes so well, so neat, like a college professor should. Read your letter, Seeger. I'm just going to lie here and think about that nice Air Force captain. <laughs> I'll think about him some more after I read this. October 15th, 1945. Dear Norman, sometime in the future you must forgive me for writing this letter. But I have been holding this in so long, and there was no one here to talk to. Because of your brother's condition, I must pretend to be cheerful and optimistic all the time at home. Both with him and your mother, who has never been the same since Leonard was killed. Norman, I need your help. While the war was on and you were fighting, I kept this to myself. It wouldn't have been fair to burden you. But now the war is over, and I no longer feel I can stand up under this alone. And you will have to face it sometime when you get home, if you haven't faced it already. Perhaps we can help each other by facing it together. So what?
Well, if we don't get the 65 bucks, we can always go to the Louver. I understand that that uh, Mona Liza's back. Yeah? Is it free, Olsen? Sure it's free. Did you ever hear the Pantheons? No. It's free, too. I'll go. What else is there in Paris that doesn't cost anything? It wasn't until last Sunday morning that something happened to make me feel the full force of the thing. I don't know how much you've guessed about the reason for your brother Jacob's discharge from the army. It's true he was pretty badly wounded in the leg at Metz. But I've asked around, and I know that men with worse wounds were returned to duty after hospitalization. Jacob is suffering now from what I suppose you call combat fatigue and he is subject to fits of depression and hallucinations. Your mother and I thought that as time went by and the war and the army receded, he would grow better. Instead, Norman, he is growing worse. Last Sunday morning, when I came down into the living room, he was crouched in his old uniform next to the window, peering out. Look, Father. Look out the window. Jacob, what's wrong? I'm observing. I'm observing, Father. V-1s and V-2s, buzz bombs and rockets. They're coming by the hundreds. No, Jacob, you're here at home, in Ohio, with your mother and me. Get down, Father, get down. You'll be killed by the flying glass. Jacob, can't you see your home? You're safe. Look there out the window, the towers of the university. Get down, you'll be cut to bits. Very well. I'll get down. Oh, get down lower, Father. You'll be killed. Jacob, we're safe here in America. We're thousands of miles from the nearest spot where bombs fell. You don't understand. You don't understand. These are the new rocket bombs. The new rocket bombs for the Jews. After that, Norman... Your brother seemed to forget about the bombs from time to time. But he kept saying the mobs were coming up the street armed with automatic rifles. He kept mumbling incoherently and kept walking back and forth saying, What's the situation? Do you know what the situation is? One day he took the ribbon he got for winning the Bronze Star and threw it in the fireplace. And then he got down on his hands and knees and picked it out of the ashes and made me pin it on him again. And he kept repeating, This is when they're coming for the Jews. This is when they're coming for the Jews. Well, well, it's where'd Seeger go? Huh? Why, he was here a minute back. I just closed my eyes for a second and... There he is, outside, walking toward the fields. Here's his raincoat on his bed. Fool, get wet, get a cold. In Paris, there's nothing to see with a cold in your head. It stopped raining, Olson. Norman must be worried about something just to walk off without saying anything. Well, yeah, you gave him enough to worry about, you and that air captain and $65 for his precious Luger. Well, we told him to think it over. He's sure proud of that gun. You know, that, that German SS Major nicked Seeger's helmet with two shots before Seeger got him. I know, I know. I told him to think it over. What's he doing out there? He's just standing out in the field reading that letter from his father. 
remarkable thing is, Norman, that I find myself coming to believe sometimes that it is Jacob who is the normal one. And I, going about my business, teaching economics in a quiet classroom, pretending that the world is comprehensible and orderly, I am really the mad one. I do not see rockets and bombs, but I see other things. Wherever you go these days, restaurants, hotels, clubs, trains, you seem to hear talk about the Jews. Mean, hateful, murderous talk. Each day the news is filled with stories of Jews still being killed somewhere on the globe. And there are influential columnists who each day grow more and more outspoken and popular. On VJ Day in celebration, hoodlums in Los Angeles savagely beat a Jewish writer. It's difficult to know what to do, where to look for friends. Three months ago, I stopped my Thursday night poker game after playing with the same men for ten years. John Porter happened to make a remark. Maybe he didn't mean it. Probably he didn't think. But when I asked an apology, he refused. And when I looked at the faces of the men who had been my friends for so long, I saw they were not with me. At the house, no one said goodnight. I know the poison was spreading from Germany before the war and during it, but I had not realized it had come so close. Most hateful of all, I have found myself looking for Jewish names on the casualty lists and secretly being glad when I found them there to prove that there at least, among the dead and wounded, we belonged. Three times, thanks to you and Jacob and Leonard, I found our name there. And God forgive me at the expense of your blood and your brother's life. Through my tears, I felt the same twinge of satisfaction. Are we asking too much and asking the right to live? Norman, when I hear about Jews still being killed in Poland, or Jews asking that they be given back their homes in France, or that they be allowed to enter some country where they will not be murdered, I find myself unreasonably annoyed with them. I feel that they're boring the rest of the world with their problems, that they are making demands upon the world by being killed, by being hungry, by asking for the return of their property. If we could all fall in through the crust of the earth and vanish in one hour with our heroes and poets and prophets and martyrs, perhaps we would be doing the memory of the Jewish race a service. This is how I feel today, son. I need some help. You've been to war. You've fought and killed men who tried to kill you. You've seen the people of other countries. Maybe you understand things that I don't understand. Maybe you see some hope somewhere. Perhaps you can help me. Your loving father. They're the new rocket bombs. They're for the Jews. Wherever you go these days, restaurants, hotels, clubs, trains, you seem to hear talk. Mean, hateful, murderous talk. must think about it. No use being angry with your father for making it necessary to think about it. While you were fighting, you were too busy and frightened and weary to think. 
The rest of the time you're relaxed, you put your brain on the shelf, postponing everything to that impossible time for solving everything after the war. After the war. Now the war is over, and I no longer feel I can stand up under this alone. And you will have to face it when you get home. What was it like before, back home? Three years is so long. You knew then that there were all sorts of Jews, some who saw signs against the Jew in every smile on a streetcar, every whisper, pogroms in every newspaper article, scorn in every handshake, death behind each closed door. But you weren't like that. You were young and big and healthy and easygoing. Back in America, what was going on in Europe was remote, unreal. The chanting, bearded old men burning in furnaces, the dark-eyed women screaming prayers in Polish and Russian and German as they were pushed naked into gas chambers were as shadowy and unreal to you as they were to the men who went through the plays with you in the giant stadium. The men named O'Dwyer and Wickersham and Poole. When you got to Europe, these tortured people seemed more related to you. When you went through the towns taken back from the Germans, gaunt, gray-faced men and women stopped you on the streets humbly. Unbelieving, they peered at you and whispered, Are you a Jew? You never quite understood why they asked it, until one day on a street in Strasbourg. And you? You are a Jew? Yes. You hear? You hear, Martha? It is not true. It cannot be true. He's not lying, Martha. Why should this young American soldier lie? He's so big, so strong. He, he walks with the others. A Jew. Your rifle, soldier, is a beautiful rifle. It's like the ones the others carry. Like the others carry. A Jew... Marching beside the others to liberate us. But I have lived to see this. Now, thinking back on it, you know you can't pretend that there wasn't a special meaning to you the day the German major almost killed you before you killed him. Standing in the warehouse your outfit had just taken, standing over the Major with his face blown in by your bullets and the Luger pistol still smoking in his hand, you had tasted an extra flavor of triumph. You had thought, how many Jews has he killed with this same Luger pistol which he would never use again? Seeker, stop grinning out of that body and come on. There's a war on. What a shot. What a shot. Right in the middle of the face. Stop that pistol and come on, Seeker. We're, we're moving up the street. Let him keep it, Olsen. Hey, nicked your helmet with it, didn't he, Norman? Yes. Twice. All right, fine, but put it away and come on. Neither Olsen nor Welsh, who were like brothers, had ever understood why you resolved in that moment there to take the Luger pistol back to America with you and keep it with the barrel plugged in your desk. You yourself only half understood why then somehow it seemed a symbol of justice and you its instrument. Now, 
today, with your father's letter and the discussion about the Luger coming so closely together, would it be better to take the pistol back to America, not as a memento, not with the barrel plugged, but loaded? Has America become a strange country to you? You've been away a long time. You don't know what's waiting for you at home. You remember the things you didn't want to remember while you were in the army. The words hate you overheard. The disgraceful stories that were repeated until they finally reached your ears. Like the story about the aristocratic lieutenant commander who said to the ensign, Mister, the Constitution of the United States says I have to serve in the same navy with the Jews. But it doesn't say I have to eat with them. Or the pretty girl who said, And they were so short-handed they actually hired a Jewish girl as a secretary. If I weren't so patriotic, I'd resign at once. And the million other stories. Jews, even the most normal and best adjusted of them, became living treasuries of them. Scraps of malice and bloodthirstiness, clever and confusing and cunningly twisted, so that every act by every Jew became suspect and blameworthy and hateful. Hideous, fascinating little stories that made of every Jew a stranger in any town, on any field, on the face of the earth. Maybe it would be better to take that Luger back to America, not as a memento, not with the barrel plugged, but loaded. There are going to be mobs coming down the street towards your house. You won't go to your death singing and praying. And then suddenly you feel ashamed. Ashamed and ridiculous for these thoughts. Seeger. Hey, Seeger, my boy. What are you doing out here in the field? Grazing? We yelled at you till we lost our voices. I... I must have been pretty deep in my father's letter. Anything wrong? No. Nothing much. Norman, we've been talking, Olsen and me, and we decided that you're pretty attached to that Luger, and maybe if you... Well, what, what else is trying to say is we withdraw the request. If, if you want to sell it, okay. If you don't, do it for you, for our sake. Honest. I haven't made up my mind yet. Anything you decide is perfectly all right with us. Perfectly. Thanks. Let's walk. No need to say more with these two. And as you walk along between them, you remember the time when Olsen covered you in the little town outside Cherbourg. When he stood in the middle of a street with no cover at all for more than a minute trying to return the fire of four Nazi machine guns so that you could get away alive. And there was the night outside of San Lo, Welch and Captain Taney crawled through a minefield in the blackness to bring you in after you'd been wounded. Welch and Olsen, tough and dependable and honest... The drinks you've had with them, the long marches, the cold winters, the girls you've gone out with together. What would Welch and Olsen think of your father and your brother crouching behind the window in Ohio waiting for the rockets? Olsen? Welch? Tell me, what do you guys think of the Jews? Jews? Huh? What are they? Welch, you ever hear of the Jews? The Jews? No, I can't say I have. But remember, I'm an uneducated fellow. 
Sorry, we can't help you. Ask us another question. Maybe we'll do better. Welch, what time did you tell that Air Force captain you'd meet him? Eight o'clock, Norman. But we don't have to go. If you have any feeling about that We'll gun... meet him. We can use that 65 bucks. Listen, Norman, I, I know how much you like that gun. I'll feel like a heel if you sell it. Forget it, both of you. What could I use it for in America? Let's go. Studio One at CBS, you have just heard Fletcher Markle's production of Act of Faith by Irwin Shaw. Another Columbia feature presentation from the pages of the world's great storytellers. Tonight's script was prepared by Charles S. Monroe of the CBS Division of Program Writing. The original musical score was composed by Alexander Semler and conducted by Alfredo Antonini. Now again, Mr. Markle. May a producer introduce the members of our cast tonight. Professor Seeger. Was played by Martin Wolfson. Welch. Was played by Robert Dryden. Olson. Was Lamont Johnson. Captain Taney. Was Myron McCormick. Jacob. Was played by Frank Behrens. Actively assisting were Miriam Wolf, Amber, Hedley Rennie, Gregory Morton, and Louis Quinn. Norman Seeger was played by your producer. Tonight, Norman Corwin is producing a special CBS feature broadcast in the second half of Studio One's regular hour... And we earnestly request you to stay by your radio and listen to it. It's a program as important and challenging as our headlines. Next week, Studio One will be back with its full hour, and we're very pleased and already amused with our story. It's Booth Tarkington's Gentle Julia. Now, until next week, this is Fletcher Markle with a good night and thank you from all of us in Studio One. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.